0: You are awesome. You are both the God who is far away, high, lifted up, beyond what any eye can see, hidden from our sight, unapproachable light, unapproachable majesty, and you're the God who is near, the God who makes himself known, the God who speaks, the God who has acted in history, in a little stable in Bethlehem on a hill outside of Jerusalem, in a little church on Main Street. You're a God who moves in lives, who moves in the world, who does things, who makes Himself known, who is visible. Father, we praise You for Your presence among us here. We praise You for things that You're doing among us. And Father, we cry out because there's so little, because there's so much of ourselves. And so little of your spirit poured out. We praise you for what you're doing and we give thanks. We cry out for what we need, Lord. You're so great. You're so good. There's so much more that you have to give. And Father, we're so grateful for what's happening among us. We're thankful for uh, godly people who are serving you, who, who you're calling together, who you're forming into a church. Father, we thank you that you're building us. Father, we thank you that your, your faithful servants are scattered throughout this whole region, this whole area, that there are people who stand for the name of Christ and are faithful. Father, we thank you for brothers and sisters who are worshiping today, bowing before you, gathering together, faithful servants proclaiming your word. And yet, Father, there's so little, there's so little that's happening and there's so much more that needs to be done. Lord Jesus, you told us to ask the Lord of the harvest to thrust out workers into the harvest. Lord, the harvest is out there. The harvest is out in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and uh, even somewhat here in this church. Father, we would ask that you would call us, that you would equip us, that you would prepare us to serve you. And Father, that you would call more, that you would awaken people, that you would give us a blessing as we go, as we speak to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our families. Father, that you would open people's hearts, open people's eyes, and make the name of Christ glorious, that people would praise you. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would lift our hearts to you. Father, if there are those here among us, and there certainly are, who are suffering, who are going through pain, difficult circumstances, Father, we ask that you would comfort, that you would turn our hearts to one another to give comfort. And for those who are just thrilled with the wonderful things happening in their lives, Father, that we would rejoice with them, that we would rejoice together. Father, make us one heart, one mind, all focused on you. Father, we ask that you would be with Jeremy now as he comes to bring your word, that you would give him wisdom in what to say and that you would speak to us. Father, that you would open our hearts and give us wise hearts to hear and understand what you have to say that we wouldn't be stubborn, that we wouldn't be slow to believe, but that we would be ready to believe and hear what you have to say to us. Father, be among us. Do something great. Do something new among us. May your name be glorified. May you be praised. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.
1: We invite any children here between kindergarten and second grade to be dismissed to Children's Church. Which I can find through the. If we could have your kids go through this door over here. Head over this way. And the rest of you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. It's on page 714, if you're using one of those Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 and following. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is uh, what I like to call one of those uh, Hubble telescope passages. You know the Hubble telescope, it's this telescope we have in orbit around the earth right now. And the reason the scientists put it up there in space was so that it could get clearer uh, pictures of heavenly bodies. The problem is when you put a a telescope here on the earth, there's so much atmospheric stuff that that as the light comes through the earth's atmosphere, it's diffused and it's weakened so that the final picture that the telescope gets is much uh, weaker here on earth. So they said, well, let's just get past that and they put the telescope up in outer space and now it gets these unobstructed uh, space pictures of distant heavenly bodies. Uh, so, so it's an amazing thing. And, and that's what I think Isaiah 40 and some passages like it are. They're, I call them Hubble telescope passages. They launch us past all the atmospheric crud that fills our lives, that just clogs up our vision day after day, our jobs and our problems and our struggles. And it, you know, it's just so liberating. It launches us past that into outer space so that we can get an unobstructed, clear vision of who God is and be reminded of the greatness of our God of this great heavenly body that we call God so um, fasten your seatbelts we're going to go into orbit here and I'm just going to read Isaiah 40 verses 12 to 26 and I would just invite you to read along in your Bible and just sort of follow along and, and let yourself uh, see the greatness of God through the lens of this great telescope in Isaiah 40 verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did, God, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before Him all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by Him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. (laughs) Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not, have you not understood since the earth was founded? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than... He blows on them, and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of His great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. (sighs) Is that just the greatest text or what? The main point of the passage is found in verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? If you want the summary statement, if you want the basic thesis of this whole passage, there it is, very simple, verse 18. In fact, take a pencil, underline it in your Bibles, write in the margin the main point if you want to. This is the main point of the passage. To whom then will you compare God? It's repeated again in verse 25, slightly different form. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. That's the main thrust of this passage. Isaiah has looked all over the universe to try to find anyone or anything, anywhere that can perhaps rival the greatness of God. And he's back and says, I didn't find anything. There's nothing. I've done a Google search of the whole universe. Look, And I put in rival for God, and it came up, zero entries found. You know, there's nothing out there. God is not just great. God is not just the greatest. And to say God is the greatest is almost an insult to God, because it implies that there might be something to whom he can be compared. It's not that God is the greatest. God is incomparably great. There's nothing that it comes anywhere near being A challenge to him. He exists on a totally different plane of reality than anything else. God is incomparably great. And so Isaiah does this survey of the universe, as I said. He looks all over to try to find something. And specifically, I I see that he looks in three types of places. Three different arenas in the universe to maybe find something, anything, somewhere that rivals God. And the first place that he looks is a logical place. He looks in nature. He looks at the natural world around us, because there's some pretty great things in the natural world. He, he looks through creation and through the wonders of the cosmos. Perhaps there he can find something that is as great as God. So in verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Here we have a, an image of God's immensity, as if God has a hand. I mean, God doesn't literally have a hand. this is a, its imagery, it's an anthropomorphism. But the idea is, if God had a hand, he, he could just scoop up all the oceans of the world like a little kid in, you know, in a bathtub, scooping up some water in his hand. Or, or he can measure the, ha- the heavens with his hand. You know Scientists are trying to figure out how big the universe is. it's expanding at some certain rate, and they're trying to figure out how wide it must be. and God's like, "Oh, that's OK. I can tell you how wide it is." It's about, uh, it's about that big. You know, that's the universe right there. It's like that little kid song. He's got the whole world in his hand. You know, the idea is right here. He just picks up the universe in his hand and you know, fiddles with it and toys with it. I mean, he's so immense and so enormous. It goes on to say, Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? God takes all the sand on all the seashores everywhere in the world and he takes all the soil from all the plains on planet earth and he combines it with all the rocks and boulders from every mountain in the world and it's like he just kind of scoops it up in a dustpan and then you know, puts it in a little basket and you know, carries it away. God is just so enormous. He's so great. He's so great. And these ideas of God as the great creator naturally spur Isaiah to think about the mind of God. Because if God created this world and He made it, you know, what must His mind be like? So that logically leads him to verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed Him as His counselor? <laughs> what kind of mind must God have to be able to come up with everything from quarks to DNA, to cells, to algae, to birds, to whales, to mountains, and nebula, and galaxies, you know, he invented all that, somewhere in his mind he said, ah, oh, this is a good idea, and it included the complexity of the universe as we know it, and who has instructed this guy? To whom does God go for mentoring? You know, wh- who does God call as a lifeline when he ne- when he's stumped on a question? Where did God go to school to study all this? The answer, of course, is you know, no one, nowhere. I mean, he's just beyond our comprehension in, in his thoughts, in his mind. In fact, uh, I-, I love this rhetorical device that's used in verses 12 through 14. It's a series of what I'll call withering rhetorical questions. It's an assault, verses 12 to 14. Who has measured the waters? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord? Verse 14, whom did the Lord consult? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Who, who, who? It's like Isaiah is this prosecuting attorney and we're the defendant sitting there and he's just assaulting us with question after question and we're like, I don't know, I don't know. know, Nobody, nobody. That's the idea. It's just supposed to, to pummel us and shock us. So that we, we saying, I don't know, there's nobody who comes close. God is incomparably great. This comparison of God with nature is picked up again in verse 22. It says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. I call this God as cosmic camper. God says, ah, sit down here. Okay, I need something to put my foot on. Ah, huh, planet Earth will do. <laughs> you know, sticks his foot on it. What's that? Is something moving down there. What, what it, oh, those are people! Oh, okay. And then, oh, I want something over my head. He sort of grabs hold of outer space and galaxies and pulls them over his head like a tent. Like a tarp and, yeah, I'll camp here today. You know, this is, this Im- obviously, again, this is imagery. But, but it's, it shows just the immensity of God and the fact that nature is, is so small compared to God. Or again, look at verse 26. One more of God versus nature. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? By His great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Uh, ancient peoples, especially those around Israel, believed that the stars were divine beings or angels or spirits or something. And, and they believed that the stars had supernatural powers. And that, That's where you get astrology. People thought that the, the movement of the stars dictated what would happen here on this earth because the stars were somehow divine. Some people still believe that today. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this verse just blasts that out of the water. Like, the stars aren't divine. The stars are God's pets. He names them all. Oh, there's little Johnny and there's Billy. You know, he's got names for all the stars. He leads them out you know, at night and brings them back. You know, this imagery of God is kind of the, the stellar shepherd. You know, come on, everybody, we're going out. Okay, it's morning, we're go, you know, going back. And he puts them all to bed. You know, it's, this, it's this imagery of God is in charge. Because of His great power and mighty strength, Not one of them is missing. The reason the laws of physics exist for us to study is because God holds them together. This is the problem with naturalism or materialism or atheism, is that it posits all these laws in the universe and it studies them, but it doesn't, it's unable to answer the question why the laws of physics work. I mean, why does gravity still work? Why Why does causation work? And the answer is that God upholds reality second by second and moment by moment all the time by His power. So, Isaiah couldn't find a comparison. As it says in verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Isaiah looks through all of nature and he says, Couldn't find anything. Nil, zip, sorry, nothing. I couldn't find an equal for you, God. So, Isaiah changes course, and he looks in a different area. He's looked at nature, and now he looks to the nations. Maybe human beings, the pinnacle of nature, perhaps. Maybe they have something that compares to God. Maybe the nations and generals and princes. So, so he shifts his focus. But what ends up happening is he comes up with even less than he did when he studied nature. Look at verse 15. This first line of verse 15 is just one of my favorite lines. Surely the nations are a drop in a bucket. I just love that. Drop in the bucket. Six billion people. How many countries? How much technology? Put it all together, what is it? Drop in the bucket to God. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Here we have this imagery of two different images, but the point is the nations of the world are almost weightless. You know, God's got this bucket. Well, bucket's empty. What do you mean bucket's empty, God? Look, there's something in there. What? I don't see anything. Well, oh, God, we put all the nations of the world in that bucket. I don't... Oh, 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 You're right. There's. I see a little tiny droplet in there. Oh, that must be the, you know, the nations. And he just goes off. It's, it's as if they're not existent. They're so um, small compared to God. It's as if they're weightless. Or they're like dust on the scales. You know, How much does dust weigh on your bathroom scale? I have a bathroom scale. I get on it. I'm holding it about... 175 right now, and uh, 180. And so uh, there's this, this scale, and, and you know I get off the scale and it goes back to zero. And it goes back to zero because there's nothing on the scale, right? Wrong. Put on a white glove, go like this on my bathroom scale, and you will find dust. But it doesn't register. That's the point. It's you know nations are so small compared to God. It's as if they are nothing. Or in verse uh, 16, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Uh, Lebanon was legendary for its sprawling forests and teeming wildlife. Uh, a, a, A common example today would be like the Amazon rainforest. If Isaiah was speaking this today, he would say, The Amazon rainforest and all its trees would not be enough for the wood for the altar, and all the animals in the Amazon rainforest wouldn't be enough for sacrifices for God. We can't come anywhere close to worshipping Him with what He's due. Take, uh, if every person on planet Earth were to take their pockets and empty them out, and were to take all the gold and all the treasures and all the silver on planet Earth and put it in a big offering plate and hold it up to God and say, Alright God, here's the offering of humanity to you. It would insult Him. Because we can't even begin to worship Him and give Him offerings that are anywhere close To his great worth and his great majesty. So he says in verse 17, this is a great summary. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. All of humanity together is just so nothing compared to the greatness of God. Not that God doesn't care for humanity, obviously he does we're saying in terms of His greatness and His majesty, He is incomparably great. Well, Isaiah picks this up again in verse 23. He goes back to the nations in verse 23. He brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground. than He blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. This reminds me of Last Sunday's text, if you are here. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of God blows on them. You know, the nations, people, even the rulers and princes, the great names of history, they're just like grass to God. He raises them up, and then they're done. We tremble at names. We tremble at names like Osama bin Laden and El Sadr and... uh, uh, the, the dictator there in North Korea, I forget his name, Kim Jong-il, I think, or Jong Kim-il. You know, we, we, we tremble at him and we think, oh, you know, he's got these nuclear weapons he's developing. What's going to happen? But, you know, God just laughs at him. He's like, oh, come on. I, I raise him up, I knock him down. You know, to God, they're not terrifying rulers. They're more like those, those puppets in that new movie that's out, that, you know, World Police or whatever that is. Uh, which I've heard is a pretty crummy movie, but I'm not going to see it. But anyway, you know, it's like God's like that. He, he, you know, they're just puppets to him. He's like, all right, I'll use this one for a while and, eh, you know, take out this one for a while. They did nothing. You know, one day Saddam Hussein is marching around in military regalia, and the next minute they're pulling him out of a hole and he looks like some guy who's been living on the streets. You know, that's how it is with God. He just says, you're here, you're there. You come, you go. God raises them up and he takes them out. There are no comparisons to God among human beings. Verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. There's nothing in nature. There's nothing among the nations of men. So Isaiah says, Well, there's got to be something out there. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Maybe I've been looking at the visible physical world. Maybe I need to look in the spiritual realm for a. Equal for God. So what he does now is his third place he looks is in other religions, other spiritualities. Maybe there's something that's like that. Maybe there are many paths to God. Maybe there are many valid spiritualities. So he starts looking at religions. And in this case, he looks at the religions of the world around him which were predominantly idolatry in his day. But look at what he finds, verse 19. As for an idol... A craftsman casts it, and the goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Note the biting sarcasm here. Isaiah looks around and he goes, that's your God? You made it. I mean, you cut a tree down, you carve it, you put some gold on it. For crying out loud, you've got to put chains on it to make sure it doesn't fall over when you carry it down the street in your religious processions. You know, that's your God? (laughs) Ah, ha, ha, ha. It's this biting, cynical uh, ridicule that's being heaped upon the idolatrous nations. That's not really a God. This is the problem with all human religion. All human religion is idolatrous because it seeks to control... God. That, that's what all human religions have in common. I remember uh, I spent a summer in Taiwan when I was in high school, and it was really great experience. I went over there, it was kind of like a missionary sort of thing. It was the first time I ever saw uh, what I would call literal idolatry, where they had literal statues. You walk down the street in Taiwan, and you know, there'd be like a restaurant, and there'd be a, some shop, and then there'd be a little temple and you look inside and they have all these little dolls set up with incense and candles and they these red sort of lights. and There's kind of this spooky, weird atmosphere in there. And, you know, I look at it and I'm like, they're just action figures! I mean, those aren't gods! You know, Look, look at those little dolls in there. I'm like, oh, come on. It's, you know, these Buddhist and Taoist temples, it just looks so silly. And then I came back to America and I realized, you know, we have idols here too. We, we don't have little statues. But do we try to create forms of religion and spirituality that are manageable, controllable, that fit into our pockets?
0: You
1: know, meditation, yoga, crystals, you know, spirituality that's... Well, it fits my schedule. It works in my life. It's practical for me. But no, no, no. God is not practical. He's not some domesticated suburban house cat. God is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is wild. He is powerful. You cannot tame this God. He is the incomparably great God. You can't encapsulate him in a sort of polite, politically correct, inoffensive, suburban church. No. You won't find God there. God is great. And we don't call him to serve us. He calls us to serve him. He's so great. And so Isaiah looks around and he doesn't find a pantheon. He doesn't find multiple gods sitting around having a conference. He doesn't find many roads to God. He finds one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. We don't like that. We're like, oh, come on, it can't be that narrow. You know, we like options. I like variety. I like a big menu. Give me the big menu. You know, that's how the restaurants are. I like lots of pages. Because when there's options, I'm in control. And I can pick that option, or I can pick that option. But when God comes along and says, there's no options, there's no choices. There's me and my Son whom I've given, and that's it. In in our selfish, idolatrous minds go, you know, because that kind of God, you can't lasso Him and control Him and wrestle Him. He is God. And there is no other, there are no others. There is just this God. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah Isaiah has looked up at the heavens, didn't find an equal. He's looked out at humanity, didn't find an equal. He's looked inwards to the temples and to the spiritualities and to the religions, empty-handed. There is no equal for God. He alone is God, and He alone is great. So why did Isaiah write all this anyway? This is probably the last question we have to answer. What's the purpose of all this? I mean, obviously, the most obvious purpose is because God is great and he deserves to be praised and magnified. But, you know, practically speaking, why was Isaiah using this? Uh, why did he go to such great lengths to spell out the greatness of God? And how is he going to apply it to his readers? And we get the answer for that in verse 27. The basic answer, the basic reason that, God, that Isaiah goes through the greatness of God is because... We, the people of God, so quickly and easily forget how great and awesome our God is. It's because we need the reminder. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. God isn't paying attention to me. God doesn't help me. He's, he's looking some someone else. God's forgotten about me. <laughs> that is so us, isn't it? <laughs> I read verse 27. That is so me. I, just, I look at verse 27. That's like I'm looking in a mirror. I, I can't believe how quickly and easily I forget about the greatness of my God. How quickly and easily the atmospheric conditions of my life just blind me it doesn't take anything just a little bit of haze and I'm suddenly like oh God is gone you know where is God and, you know it can be the big things in life like I don't know watching TV and hearing about a couple more soldiers who have been killed in Iraq or get your mail and you get those little flyers just, I get them every day you know another child abducted have you seen me you, know, you look at that and you're like you know, what kind of world is this God are you there are you paying attention um, what happens if my candidate doesn't win in November? You know, what's going to happen to America, you know, whoever your candidate may be? You know, what's going to happen? We, we get these sort of panicky feelings. Are you there, God? Are, are you involved in my life? Have, have you forgotten about us? But typically it's not even the big sort of headline news stories that weaken our faith in God or cause us to doubt God. More often it's the trials of our lives. That's what really does it. It's when you have to go through a long-term unemployment. Or you have to go through a long-term illness. Or somebody in your family has to go through a long-term illness. Or uh, you go through a long-term crummy marriage. Or a long-term crummy singleness. <laughs> we go through these painful, difficult things in our lives. Th- things that frustrate us. And, and at first, it's easy. You know, when you first start chemo, it's like, here we go. Everyone's praying for me. I'm going to do this you get pumped up and you have a lot of faith in God but you know five months into chemo it's a little harder to have a strong overcoming faith I mean sometimes it happens but the fact is we're so weak I'm so weak but you know what most causes me to weaken in my faith it's it's not the problems of the world or even the problems of my life you know what most weakens my faith is my own sinfulness and weakness Nothing frustrates me more than me. <laughs> I'm the most frustrating thing in my life. I've been a Christian now for 20 years. I was born again about 20 years ago. I've been saved that long. I've known the Lord. I've been a pastor for 8 years. I'd think I'd be further along than I am. But you know, I'll preach a sermon and I'll be like, Woo! That was a good sermon. And I'll go home and I'll be tired and I'll snap at my wife. And I'll be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Why did I say that? You know? And I just kick myself. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Or, 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 I'll, or I'll start worrying and doubting God. It's like, how many times has God shown Himself faithful in my life? And then something new comes up, and I start to panic. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? The, the thing that most frustrates me and weakens my faith in God is myself. And I thank God. I Are you done with me? Are you just moved on to someone else? You're so frustrated with how lame I am and how slow I am to understand and believe? Certainly you've got to have given up on me now with as many mistakes and false starts and fall on my face as I have made. So many sins, so many things I've said that I regret. Oh God, how could you still be with me? And God says in verse 28, Hey Jeremy, Hey South Shore Baptist, My people around the world, verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. God doesn't get stressed out, God doesn't get freaked out, God doesn't need a vacation, God doesn't need a nap. God doesn't need a day at the spa. God doesn't need medication. We do. <laughs> God doesn't. He's, in fact, it's just the opposite. He gives strength to the weary. God's got so much strength and life and vitality. He's giving it away. Yeah, I go. I need all this. I got plenty. You go. You have some. You have some. There you go. Does anyone want me? Any? God's saying, do not you come to me? I got some." Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. Even the greatest of us, the most faithful of us, the strongest of us can stumble in our faith. Nobody is immune from it. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will not walk and not be faint. We have to get a fresh vision of the greatness of God. We need to get past the atmospheric crud that clouds our lives and remember who our God is and let our minds dwell on Him. The antidote to the magnitude of life's troubles is to look at something even greater which is the magnitude of our God an emphasis on our God not just some God up there our God and he is great and there's no one like him there's a story told about the uh, congregation in Belfast, Ireland just after the Titanic sank uh, I don't know if you know the Titanic was built in Belfast, Ireland it was the pride of Belfast you know they were the ones who made it and they were so overjoyed in uh, fact, 16 of their mechanics went on the ship and perished when the ship went down. So you know, this was an enormous blow to Belfast because you know, this was their ship and these were their boys who'd gone over there and died in that. Uh, it was a tremendous blow. And it, it's said that on the, after the Titanic sank, big, strong Irishmen would come up to each other in the streets and just sob and hug each other and walk away because they were just so shaken by it. It must have been like a 9-11 sort of a thing. It's you know, the whole town shaken to its knees. Well, uh, the, the Sunday after the Titanic went down, there was an American who was in town who was scheduled to preach in one of the major churches, the church where a number of these men had died. So can you imagine this, this pastor? The American pastor visiting. And the first Sunday he comes to preach is the Sunday after the Titanic went down. And here's this church. There's 16 new widows. The place is packed, uh, just like the church was packed after 9/11. Churches everywhere is packed. This place is packed. The stage was filled up with magistrates and lords and pastors. Everyone was there to hear this sermon because they needed to be in God's house. But, you know what is that pastor going to say? I mean, pretend you're the pastor. All right. First of all, pretend you have no fear of public speaking. Now imagine you have to speak. Okay? You have to speak. What are you going to say to that group of people? <laughs> it's like, their world has been rocked. What, I mean, what are you going to say? So this pastor gets up, and you know the Holy Spirit must have given him wisdom, because he gets up and he preaches a sermon, and the title of the sermon is, The Unsinkable Ship. But he doesn't preach at all about the Titanic. He preaches about a little fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee that came into a bad storm, And the storm was so bad, the fishermen were freaking out and fearing for their lives. These seasoned fishermen said, we're dead, the boat's going to sink. But the boat didn't sink because Jesus was in the boat. This is how we face the trials of life. By lifting our eyes from the titanic, no pun intended, the titanic uh, trials of our lives to something far greater and far more awesome which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the Israelites back in Isaiah's day had a reason to be encouraged, how much more so should we be encouraged when we have Christ crucified for us, buried for us, raised for us, ascended to the Father's right hand and returning? That is our Savior. How much more so should we be filled with hope in the midst of trials? And so lift your eyes from whatever garbage it is that's going on in your life and just fill up your vision with the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. To whom will you compare Him? Or who is His equal?
0: Would you stand, and we're going to close this morning by singing, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our
1: eternal home. After the service, our prayer team is here. Why don't you come over here, prayer team. Pat and Vera are here and they would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life, big or small. I'm going to go downstairs to a visitor's table. If you're a new visitor with us this Sunday, we have a a table downstairs we can give you some literature and I'd love to meet you. So come on downstairs and say hello uh, after the service. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the greatness of your majesty. Lord God, everything is big in our eyes, except the one thing that really is big, which is You. Lord, I, I suffer from spiritual myopia. And I pray that You would correct my spiritual vision. Fill me up with such a sense of Your greatness. Because, Lord, we walk out of these doors now to a world where people are hurting, where people are overwhelmed by life's stuff, and they don't even have Jesus. And they need Him. And I pray, God, that we would bring them the love and the name of Jesus, not in some self-righteous, condescending way, but in humility, in gentleness. Help us to talk about the Jesus who has saved us. Lord, give us opportunities this week, and give us the guts to speak up when they come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.